Bobby Thompson up there swinging. He's had two out of three, a single and a double, and Billy Cox is playing him right on the third base line. One out, last of the ninth, Franco pitches. Bobby Thompson takes a strike call on the inside corner. Bobby hitting at 2.92. He's had a single and a double, and he drove in the Giants' first run with a long fly to center. Brooklyn leads it 4 to 2. Arton down the line at third, not taking any chances. Lockton without too big of a lead at second, but he'll be running like the wind if Thompson hits one. Franco throws. There's a long strike. I can't be, I believe. The Giants won the pennant. 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 Bobby Thompson hits into the very back of the left field stand. The Giants won the pennant, and they're going crazy. They're going crazy. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, all right, all right. Let's get going. How are you, everybody? It's your pal, Tim Hanlon. And of course, Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you kindly for finding us, and uh, we appreciate your, your doing so. And uh, as you know by now, this is the uh, silly little show that each and every week is devoted to exploring various teams and leagues and situations, et cetera, in the, in the realm of pro sports that don't exist anymore for whatever reasons. And as you're uh, on duty, uh, doctor of defunct, your professor of previously domiciled, your reverend of relocation, uh, it is my duty to inform you that this week's uh, episode is devoted to the uh, the incarnation of the current San Francisco uh, baseball giants when they were known as the New York baseball giants. And that clip sort of gives you a little bit of a hint, right? Perhaps one of the most famous calls in all of baseball, if not sports itself. That was, of course, the shot heard round the world, that very world famous game, Wednesday, October 3rd, 1951 in the uh, in the afternoon at the Polo Grounds in Manhattan. That's uh, when the New York Giants won the National League pennant over their vaunted rivals, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And the call, of course, very famously done by Russ Hodges on WMCA radio on 570 on your AM New York City dial. Uh, ironically, a call that was recorded by uh, somebody, at least at the time, was uh, uh, known as a Dodgers fan. Lawrence Goldberg was his name. I think he asked his mother to record the last half inning of the game. And um, it, uh, without that recording, we would not have had that iconic moment. Uh, Chesterfield uh, Cigarettes apparently uh, pressed a, a record very shortly thereafter uh, as well, which helped sort of uh, memorialize that call too as well. But as uh, fans may or may not know, that was one of like seven different broadcasts of that game. Uh, and the, the, the uh, for those who are alive at the time, not I, but uh, but certainly others and talked about stories about this, um, the uh, the the odds are, are were much greater that you would heard not um, uh, not that iconic call by Russ Hodges, 
but probably one of the other ones um, could have been uh, Red Barber, for example, on WMGM radio, uh, which was the Dodgers radio flagship station. He was calling the game uh, and there are clips. There's a clip of him out there, too, uh, calling that uh, final home run uh, and not nearly as uh, as exciting or excitable uh, as Hodges is for probably for obvious reasons. Uh, Ernie Harwell was calling the game for uh, for television. The uh, New York Giants' uh, flagship television station at the time was WPIX Channel 11, uh, which I think carries both Mets and Yankees games now. But uh, interestingly, that game on local television, Channel 11, was also for that game being simulcast on the NBC television network. And interestingly, it was the first ever coast-to-coast live tele- uh, telecast of a Major League Baseball game. So there are probably a lot of people who heard the Ernie Harwell call. Not a bad call in and of itself. That's also available floating around there on YouTube, et cetera. But again, not nearly the verve and the uh, the powerful excitement that you heard in the Hodges call. Uh, if you were listening to the game uh, outside of New York, you probably heard the Gordon McClendon call on something called the Liberty Broadcasting System. Uh, yeah, he said the Giant. he yelled out the Giants win the pennant, I think only once, as opposed to Hodges is like, I don't know, 12. Um, but uh, that was probably the more, more listened to broadcast, if you can believe that. Uh, there was another radio call by a guy named Al Helfer on the mutual broadcasting system, as well as two guys calling on uh, calling it for a Spanish language uh, network. I'm not quite sure what that network was named, but Buck Canell and Philo Ramirez. You say that. Philo Ramirez. There you go. Sorry, it's been a long day. Uh, and um, there was also a re-recording by a guy named Nat Albright, uh, who uh, uh, recorded or re-recorded uh, the game and uh, for for later broadcasts as well. So there are a whole bunch of of places you could have heard this game, but but none more memorable than that of uh, of Russ Hodges. And I believe last year, if I'm not mistaken, the Library of Congress even uh, inducted uh, that broadcast of Hodges's uh, into the National Recording Registry. Uh, that's how iconic uh, that call was. One of the few rare moments of on-field greatness for this New York baseball Giants team, obviously followed up in 1954 with the ultimate prize, the World Series. Uh, but of course, alas, uh, the team, along with the Brooklyn Dodgers across the river, bolted from New York in 1957 for the greater pastors of California and leaving broken hearts everywhere. But we're going to get into uh, the story of of the Giants and the guy behind it, Horace Stoneham. Uh, it's a fascinating tale. You'll get, we'll get into it, but he inherited the team from his dad. Uh, let's say he wasn't the hardest working guy until his dad kind of put him through his paces in order to see if he could uh, uh, rise to the level of, of managing a, a team like this. And, and he did so for sure after some hard uh, some hard times and some uh, some hard knocks in, in the real world uh, and uh, and then some. And uh, it's very interesting that we have this conversation uh, with our pal this week, Steve Treader, uh, because his book is coming out in a couple of weeks time. It's called 40 Years a Giant, The Life of Horace Stoneham. And as you'll hear in our chat with Steve in a, in a few moments, not a whole lot uh, th- that's obvious uh, about the the life and times of this guy because he liked it that way. He didn't, he was kind of a modest character. Uh, some would argue his team kind of suffered uh, from, from a modesty uh, factor as well in the, you know, against the backdrop of what became a, a, a big time Yankees franchise. And obviously the Dodgers got a lot of 
uh, a lot of attention in the New York area as well. So hard enough being uh, the third or one of three baseball teams in New York at the time, but uh, probably not aided by the fact that you had a, a an owner and general manager and chief cook and bottle washer of the team in Horace Stoneham, who was uh, kind of publicity shy. But we get into that, and it's also interesting timing, too, because literally a day after we recorded this this uh, this conversation with Steve, uh, we discovered, unbeknownst to us at the time, somebody has created uh, literally within the last week or so a, a, a website and apparently a cause devoted to trying to get Horace Stoneham into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, the website, by the way, is called HoraceInTheHall.com. Horace, H-O-R-A-C-E, in the hall, all one word, HoraceInTheHall.com. And it's it's fantastic. Uh, you got Willie Mays, the late Willie Mays, with some um, uh, testimonials and, and all kinds of stuff, documents uh, and other kinds of uh, pieces of information that uh, make a very, very strong case as to why perhaps Horace Stoneham uh, the oft-overlooked owner of these New York baseball giants, and then obviously the becoming the San Francisco Giants, should be, could be, maybe will be added to the Hall of Fame up in Cooperstown. So hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation. The book is great. Uh, I think it's probably the best, if not the only, uh, you know, uh, carefully curated and uh, and thoroughly researched uh, book about the life of Horace Stone. I'm obviously intertwined with that of the history of the Giants, certainly when they were in New York and a little bit later in San Francisco, but also the Polo Grounds. The Polo Grounds was instrumental and very much part of this franchise. It was part of the package that uh, Horace uh, inherited from his from his dad. Uh, and uh, if you remember our previous conversation, I forget what number it was, with uh, our pal Stu Thornley, uh, the Polo Grounds was uh, not only the home of the New York baseball Giants, but all kinds of stuff. It was essentially kind of, uh, for for many years, sort of an outdoor palace, if you will, for all kinds of sports stuff, boxing and the International Soccer League and all kinds of great stuff. The New York Mets came back for a run uh, after the Giants and the Dodgers had left back in the early 60s. The New York football Titans, uh, then becoming the New York Jets, got their start in the last couple of years of its existence as well. All of that stuff is all part of this story. It's the, uh, it's the, the, uh, the background and the history and the story of Horace Stoneham and his New York baseball Giants with our guest this week, Steve Treader. It's fun, it's interesting, and it's coming up in a moment and a half. Before we get there, uh, a tip of our New York Giants baseball cap this week to our pals at Streaker Sports, streakersports.com, the purveyors of sports culture, of course, tons of great shirts, etc., devoted to uh, commemorating tons and tons of great old forgotten leagues, uh, and uh, and sports and teams in those leagues, baseball, soccer, basketball, hockey, uh, but you name it, they're all there and more, plus great sports culture stuff, uh, Caddyshack collection, uh, the uh, Bill Raftery Onions collection, uh, the Slapshot collection, uh, the, uh, it's all kinds of just great stuff you're going to find uh, at Streaker Sports, Streaker Sports, Dot com Again, the purveyors of sports culture. And of course, please enjoy, courtesy of us and our friends at Streaker Sports, a promo code to get you 15% off all of your purchases. Please use that often and early. And that code, of course, is Good Seats. Good Seats. That's the promo code at StreakerSports.com. Again, promo code Good Seats, 15% off all of your purchases. Thank you, Streaker Sports. And thank you for giving them a try and giving us 
a listen this week. Here's our conversation. Let's get into it. Uh, the history and the story of one Horace Stoneham and the New York baseball giants, uh, the polo grounds, it's all in there. Please sit back and enjoy. Well, I'm born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. I uh, grew up in Santa Clara, uh, but my parents, my mom and dad, both grew up in Oakland uh, in the 1920s and 30s, and they were big uh, Pacific Coast League fans. They were big Oakland Oaks fans. Uh, but by the time I came along, I was born in 1958. By the time I came along, the Oakland Oaks were no more, and they had moved from Oakland down to Santa Clara, and the the team in the Bay Area, the the major league team in the Bay Area was the Giants. And so they became devoted Giants fans. I grew up in a household where in the summertime, the Giants game was always on the radio, always. And, you know, in the car, in the house, whatever. So I was steeped in Giants fandom, you know, literally since before I can ever remember. So I grew up as a passionate Giants fan in the, oops, sorry, in, in the San Francisco or in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 60s and 70s, um, in in that period, Horace Stoneham was the owner of the Giants, and everybody sort of knew it, knew his name. But he was, you know, very, very publicity shy. He never appeared publicly, never was quoted in the paper, at least almost never. Um, and so he he was known to be there, but he was mysteriously absent. And so I always just assumed as a kid he was just just the owner. He just wrote the checks, you know. But other people made all the decisions and ran the team. And, of course, as I grew older and began to understand, that was not the case at all. Stoneham was not just the owner. Stoneham was the general manager. Stoneham fashioned the roster. He made the trades. He did everything. He ran the operation top to bottom himself, which is extraordinarily unusual. By the time he was doing it in the 60s, he and Calvin Griffith in Minneapolis were the only two owners left doing it. I guess Charlie Finney in Oakland pretty much did the same thing, too. But it was it was becoming a very rare thing. So over the years, I always had been a Giants fan, but then I became more of a general baseball scholar and historian, um, did a lot of work with the Society for American Baseball Research, making presentations and writing articles uh, for about, 10 years, I guess, I, w I wrote a weekly uh, column on baseball history at the online baseball site, Hardball Times, and contributed to their annual uh, baseball books every year. But all along, you know, my fandom was the Giants, and uh, it just became more and more apparent to me as a, as a scholar of baseball history that Stoneham was one of the great figures in fashioning Major League Baseball as we came to know it over the 20th century. And no one had ever told his story. Nobody. Because he didn't want his story to be told. He was he was publicity shy. And he didn't want to be quoted. He, he was the absolute opposite of Walter O'Malley and Bill Veck, you know, these very ranch Ricky, these uh, baseball moguls who were very interested in fashioning their stories, very interested in cultivating the press and making sure that their story was told and heard and told and, told and heard in the way they wanted it told. Stoneham was absolutely not that way. And so his story begged to be told. Um, so a friend of mine, a guy by the name of Rob Garrett, uh, had been involved uh, with the Giants organization in researching a, a book he wrote a few years ago, 
called Home Team, which was sort of the history of the Giants in San Francisco from Stoneham through Bob Lurie, and I guess it was up through Bob Lurie through the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, but Rob said to me, look, I got tons of research material here, but I'm not writing the Horace Stoneham biography, but somebody should, and Steve, you should. And so he was right, I should. If anybody else is poised to do this, it would be me. So this was in 2013, I believe. So I said, yes, you're right, I should. So it took me a couple years to sort of clear my calendar and focus on it, but I began really full-time researching uh, and working on the book in about 2015, and uh, and here we are. It's coming out this year. How do you go about approaching uh, approaching um, the subject matter at hand? Do you kind of use the the move uh, and all the drama around that from New York to San Francisco as kind of the starting point, or do you kind of go back to the origins of the of the franchise, in particular uh, Stoneham's father, who was the original? I guess at least preceded him at least uh, how do you kind of get the how do you kind of get the story kind of foundationally going the 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 way i write the the book is chronological so it starts with horace's father who was a fascinating figure in his own right um and who bought the franchise in 1919 and then uh, horace inherited from him when charles died in 1936 so the the, the that's the, the narrative of the book starts with Charles and goes to Horace. But the the way I sort of hook people into it is there's a prologue in the book that doesn't start back then, that starts at the end. It starts in 1975. It's, it starts literally with the very final Giants game played at Candlestick Park under Horace's uh, ownership on September 21st, 1975. So I begin the story there. And begin it sort of. It's the only time in the book when we're inside Horace's head, seeing the world f- from his eyes and 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 knowing his innermost thoughts. Um, and that we were sort of introduced to this character who loved the Giants more than anything else in the world. He was a you know a, a father and a grandfather and a husband and all those things. But I'm I think I'm accurate in saying that he loved the Giants even more than his own family. He loved the Giants, loved them. And how could somebody who loved something that deeply, who devoted his literally his entire adult life to the Giants, he had almost no other interest. They they were the the thing he devoted all his energy to. How could somebody well, sell the franchise as he did finally in 1975-76, but how could he also move this franchise from New York? How could that happen? Because the other thing that Horace loved, along with the Giants, was New York. He was a creature of New York because his father was so wealthy and famous and prominent. You know, Horace grew up surrounded by luxury and glamour and and interest and attention and uh he grew up just living the the most lavish manhattan lifestyle one could he enjoyed that lifestyle he loved being a new yorker and being in manhattan and the giants were an embodiment of all that all that culture and all that history and the the story basically tries to confront how it could be that such a person could a move this beloved franchise uh, because he had to and then finally uh, less than 20 years later 
sell that beloved franchise is because he had to. He had no other choice. Well, maybe we should uh, go back into the uh, the Charles Stoneham, uh, Horace's father, uh, kind of story, because of the the way that that uh, 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 Stoneham Senior gets uh, involved with and, and becomes owner of this um, New York Giants baseball uh, franchise back in, well, I guess it's the late teens, right, um, is a little mongrelly, I guess, by lack of a better word, huh? <laughs> Well, Charles was an absolutely intriguing character, extraordinarily complex. Uh, at the time, nobody understood him, and history hasn't helped us understand him much better yet. Uh, he, he was born in Jersey City in 1876, uh, not too wealth. He was not impoverished, but certainly not above what we would consider the middle class at the time. He got less than a high school education. Uh, but he, at a young age, um, grew to love the securities trading business, uh, stock brokerages and all the other kinds of things that brokerage houses would have sold in those days. He was a bored boy, you know, runner of, of messages, and then he started working as a salesman selling stocks and bonds and securities uh, as a teenager. And this is an era, this is, would be the 1890s and 1900s, when stock trading on Wall Street was essentially the Silicon Valley of its day. It was booming in growth and tons of wealth being created, uh, but in a Wild West atmosphere. There was no Security and Exchange Commission. There were very, very little regulation laws surrounding it. Uh, so a lot of what went on was if not illegal at the time, certainly understood to be unethical at the time. And Charles Stoneham was right at the forefront of that. He was not an honest man. He was not an honest broker. He, he made millions of dollars, millions of dollars in an era when that truly was a lot of money. Uh, but he did so uh, using less than legal and ethical means. His The basic business model he had was running what were called at the time bucket shops which were uh, stock brokerage houses that took orders to buy and sell stocks. But instead of directly executing the order and delivering the shares to the, to the person who you know, wanted them bought or sold, uh, they would wait and see where the market would go for that particular issuing up or down, and then time their buying and selling of it to skim off a profit. Um, it wasn't illegal at the time, but it was certainly regarded as unethical. It was, a, it was regarded as a way that uh, they would swindle unsophisticated small investors because, you know, big, big investors knew to steer clear of such places. But the small mom and pop, you know, investors didn't understand that. And so this was a way of basically skimming profits off of those people and being, doing so in a dishonest way. He made millions doing this. By the late teens, he was one of the wealthiest people in New York. He not only made tons of money on Wall Street, but then, you know, was a nouveau riche sportsman in New York. He ran, he had uh, uh, horse racehorses in Saratoga. He had uh, casinos and, and racetracks in Havana. He had, you know, hotels and casinos all over the place. He was a very close friend and associate of Arnold Rothstein, who, of course, was a crooked gambler himself, um, who 
fixed the 1919 World Series. Uh, Charles and and Arnold Rothstein were buddies. So this is the this is the world he ran in. Um, the New York Giants at the time were, of course, the biggest franchise in sports. This is before the rise of the Yankees. This is the Giants were the big team in New York, the big team in baseball, which was the big sport. John McGraw, with the help of the great Christy Mathewson, had built the Giants into a, a dynastic power in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and by 1918, the uh, owner of the Giants was a fellow by the name of Harry Hempstead, who'd inherited them from his father-in-law, John T. Brush. Hempstead, um, because of the twin blows to the baseball business, which was World War One, and then the, the pandemic flu, the, the Spanish flu epidemic that really impacted uh, uh, attendance in 1918, uh, Hempstead had had it. He wanted out of baseball, so he let John McGraw know. McGraw, of course, was the superstar manager and the key employee of the organization. He let McGraw know that he was thinking of selling, and so McGraw immediately saw this as his opportunity to get into ownership himself. So McGraw searched around for a buyer. McGraw knew a uh, Tammany Hall judge, a crooked judge by the name of Francis McQuaid, and McQuaid knew Charles Stoneham, and so through McQuaid, they brokered the deal to sell the Giants franchise to Charles Stoneham in um, December 1918, January 1919. Uh, Stoneham gets into baseball just in the nick of time because, of course, it was less than a year later that the 1919 World Series gets thrown. And after that, the, the, the owners bring in Kennesaw Mountain Landis to clean up the image of baseball. No doubt had Charles Stoneham attempted to buy into uh, the Giants after Landis was commissioner, there's no way Landis would have allowed it, uh, you know, because Stoneham was a known associate of Arnold Rothstein. He owned racehorses and casinos, and he was big time into gambling. And there's no way he could have bought the franchise, but he did. He he had already bought in, and so he was in under the wire. Um, I'm sorry. Why, why was he? Why did he get background? In, Go ahead. Why, why did he get into the under the wire? I mean, we because well, we've we've heard this a little bit, sort of in the origin story of the of the, the New York Rangers and the New York uh, Americans of of the National Hockey League, and and uh, the gambling thing, right? Is uh, that that was his source of income essentially, right? And that was just his industry, quote unquote, so to speak, right? Even though it wasn't fully or maybe even partially legal. Well, because he got in before Landis was commissioner. He, uh, uh, Stoneham bought in in 1918, 1919, when it was still, you know, it was still open season. Uh, you know, the baseball was still in, well within the grip of gamblers at that time. Lots of owners yeah, yeah, yeah. Were, 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 were messed up in that bracket. Um, so he got in. By the time he was in, then, you know, the, the Black Sox World Series happens and Landis comes in and, and Landis changes the, for good or ill, Landis really did have an impact on changing that whole mindset and, and making sure that there were no uh, direct or even indirect circumstantial uh, uh, links between baseball and gambling. Uh, whether uh, Landis uh, mandated or not, as soon as the 1920s were underway, Stoneham was actively divesting himself of those holdings. He was selling off his casinos and his racehorses and attempting at least to present himself as an honest uh, businessman. He was also in court time and time again over the 1920s uh, for lawsuits and for 
uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, he was legally sued. I'm, I'm, I'm missing the word here. Indicted indictments for um, illegal uh, uh, securities trading. Uh, he was never convicted. He, you know, had enough clout with the right lawyers and the right Tammany Hall judges and stuff to steer clear of it all. But it was, he was clearly a very controversial figure even at the time. Um, and would not such a figure would not have allowed to buy into baseball as an owner post Landis, but but he was in before Landis, and so he was he was grandfathered into into place. Well, uh, um, and I don't want to go too much on on the Charleston. I'm sorry, but but it's it's important and foundational. I, my sense is that he was also um, almost trying to almost be sort of a budding sports entrepreneur too. Beyond well, within baseball for sure, because there's the whole Yankee story and and the Yankees being a, a a renter, if you will, of the polo grounds and, and even an attempt to kind of get the Yankees to leave town. But he was also involved in some of the early uh, coalescences around things like football and even pro soccer at the time in the, that, that era. Uh, yes. Charles Dunham is a very complicated character, along with all of his shady business dealings and, you know, quote unquote, organized crime connections. He was legitimately a, a sports fan. He loved the Giants. Baseball was his number one passion, other than gambling and horses and liquor. He loved baseball. He was a baseball fan from the time he was a kid. His baseball hero as a child was Mike Kiernan, the New Jersey-born star left fielder for the Giants in the 1880s and 1890s. That was Charlie Stoneham's hero. He loved the Giants, and he was a a season ticket holder at the Polo Grounds for years and years and years. That's, That's why he was involved. And yes, absolutely. Once he buys into the Giants, and, and of course, you're not just buying the franchise, you're buying the stadium, the Polo Grounds, which was the best stadium in the world at that time. He very soon um, uh, funds an ambitious remodeling scheme to, to increase this, the seating capacity of the Polo Grounds and then, and then presents the Polo Grounds not just as the home of the New York Giants, but as a year-round venue for sporting events. They had boxing matches and football games and, and, you know, miniature auto racing and all kinds of soccer uh, was, was, we don't sort of think about it at this time, but soccer back in the day, back in Eastern cities with lots of European immigrants was a, a, a big sport. And they, they sold a lot of tickets, uh, uh, putting, uh, soccer matches there, you know, for the time, um, Charles Stoneham really did operate the giants as a, multi or the polo grounds at least as a multi-sport entertainment venue they had opera at the polo grounds he was he was quite a forward thinker in those regards and had he really focused his attention on that and not been so distracted as he was with all of his lawsuits and indictments um he may very well have as successfully uh you know launched the 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 national exhibition company which was the company that owned the giants and the polo grounds into a multi multi-sport entertainment venue. The, the the Yankee story is an interesting one. Yes, the Yankees at this time, remember in the 19 aughts and teens, the Yankees were the were the the runt of the of New York. They weren't a successful franchise. They were kind of knocked around. They were called the Highlanders until their old ballpark they had to move out of the their old ballpark which was up on a bluff in uh, in northern Manhattan. So then they moved in and became just renters of the Giants and the Polo Grounds and that was bottom land next to the river. So they were no longer called the Highlanders. They just became the Yankees. They were, you know, the Giants tenant and um, just a source of revenue for the Giants. 
until they were purchased by by uh, Jacob Rupert in 1915, and Rupert invested money and, and began to make the Yankees be a, a successful competitive franchise and started to to make some money on their own. And then, of course, they bring in Babe Ruth, <laughs> of all people. Um, and so poor McGraw and Stoneham find themselves being upstaged in their very own ballpark by the biggest superstar in baseball, and the Yankees start winning pennants. So in 1921, the Giants tried to evict the Yankees from the polo grounds. Um, and, and the feeling was if they can evict the Giants, the Yankees from the polo grounds, the Yankees will have no place to play. And the American League will will uh, take the Yankees' ownership away from Rupert because one of the tenets of the league is if you're a franchise in the league, you have to have a, a stadium to play in. Well, they averted that crisis and 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 negotiated a short-term, final two-year lease for the Yankees. While at the time they built Yankee Stadium, um, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's remarkable the story. The Yankees went from being the Giants' little you know runt tenant to a direct competitor in their own ballpark, and then over the course of the 1920s, of course, they surpassed the Giants in fame and success and and attendance and revenue and. And the Giants never, as try as they might, over the decades, they never caught up again. So where is the young Horace in all of this? And how does uh, the path to his uh, inheritance, if you will, of this team come about? And, and the grounds itself, was, right? The polo grounds is part of that, too. Sure. Sure. Horace was the only surviving son. He had an older brother who drowned uh, in 1905, I guess it was. Uh, so Horace was the only surviving son of Charles, and Charles doted on his surviving son and wanted his son to be his his heir and and take over his his uh, his business career. Uh, Horace, however, was very different in personality from his father. You know, Charles was very driven, a hard guy, a tough guy, a hard charger, a, a workaholic. Uh, Charles uh, Horace was none of those things. Horace was a nice kid. Everybody loved Horace. <laughs> Horace was a spoiled, rich little kid who, you know, wasn't driven to do much of anything except enjoy himself. Um, Horace uh, played baseball in high school. Barely, uh, it looks, it seems to be the case that he barely graduated um, from high school. His father then enrolls Horace at Fordham uh, because. The thing that Charles did not have was a college education, and so he was from, you know, sort of the working class culturally, and, you know, as rich as he was, he knew that if you didn't have a college education, there was a, there was an elite social class in the United States that you could never gain entry to, never never be respected, and he wanted more than that for his son. He wanted his son to be not just wealthy, but educated as well, and, and accepted within the upper crest society elite the way that Charles never could be. And so he enrolled his son at Fordham in 19, let's see, this would be 1921. Um, Horace tells the story he lasted at Fordham for about four days. That's almost certainly an overstatement for the sake of a good story, but it is the case that Horace dropped out of Fordham, couldn't keep up his grades. And this just you know, frustrated his father to no end. His father wanted him to, okay, not Fordham, then where else? I'll, I'll send you to any college you want. What do you want to do with your life? And Horace didn't want to do much with his life except hang around and, you know, go out to speakeasies with his fellow rich kid friends and just, you know, loaf. <laughs> and so this this 
stalemate lasted for a period of, it seems to be about two years with Horace not wanting to do much of anything and Charles apoplectic trying to get him to, to grow up and start to work. And so finally, uh, Charles comes up with a last resort. Among Charles's many real estate holdings were mining operations. In particular, he owned a copper mine um, in a place called Copperopolis, California, which is in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. It's really in gold country is, is where it, it is. But uh, by the 1920s, they weren't mining much gold there anymore, but they were mining a lot of copper. And so uh, Horace or Charles issues an ultimatum to, to, to Horace. You want the Giants? And of course, Horace, yeah, I want the Giants. Well, then you're never going to get the Giants unless you do what I say. And what you're going to do is you're going to get on a train and you're going to go to Copperopolis, fucking California, and you're going to work in my mine. <laughs> this is what it is, Horace. This is your only opportunity. And so Horace, we don't know exactly what his his uh, deportment was about this, but he did it. He got on a train all by himself and he went out to Copperopolis, California, which in 1922 was a very, very tough, hard, remote place uh, that uh, a, a softy, rich, dandy kid from Manhattan like Horace Stone had never seen anything like it in his life. But ever, all the evidence is that this last resort uh, Hail Mary pass by Charles to make his son grow up, it worked. Uh, that Horace uh, did work at the copper mine and did grow up and learn to respect hard work and learn to respect the people who perform hard work and learn to get up in the morning and go to work each day. And, and, uh, and, you know, he went there a boy and he became a man. And after a couple of years of this in the spring of 1924, uh, Charles is satisfied the reports he's getting back from the foreman of the mine in, in Copperopolis is that Horace is, is, you know, he's, he's grown up. He's, he's doing his, share he's he's working and he's and he's gaining the respect of the people around him and so charles said okay then uh here's your ticket you get on a train you come to florida and you are you're going to be working for me now you're going to be working for the giants and so over the 1920s horace was apprenticed um to run the polo grounds and he worked he literally worked all those jobs. He worked on the grounds crew. He worked in the clubhouse. He worked in the ticket office. He worked, you know, the, the operations of the, you know, the painting and and the maintenance of the of the facility. And then he got into booking events and, uh, uh, you know, being the the secretary of all of the, the the business operations. And he, over the period of years, Horace worked his way up to become the essentially the operations manager of the polo grounds. And once again, it wasn't just baseball. It was football and boxing and tennis and all kinds of stuff. It was, a, it was you know, the, the, the modern-day arenas, this was, this was sort of the prototype of that. It was, it was all sports all the time. And, and Horace, Horace ran it, and, and to, the, to the satisfaction of his father, they, they grew to have a very close, um, mutually respectful relationship. So, I, I, and... and... Horace Stoneham was uh, regarded as very much uh, after he became uh, the sole uh, owner of the franchise as a hands-on uh, general manager, uh, which I'm guessing uh, really got instilled in this uh, almost decade or two long apprenticeship under his father, doing basically just about everything uh, under the sun with regards to uh, the stadium, uh, the, the team, 
and all the other events and all the other stuff and the constellation of what's going on there that that uh, that uh, conglomerate. Yeah, it's well. it's interest it's interesting. Uh, you know, it's sort of an interesting glimpse into Horace's uh, personality in that he he not only wanted to do that, he liked to do that. He he liked the details. He liked the the the, the nitty gritty of day to day operations. Um, and he and he's quite differently from his father, who was a tough, hard guy who you know people feared and respected but didn't like. Everybody liked Horace. He was a nice person. He was good to people. He was decent. He was honest. He was he was self-effacing and humble and 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 respectful. And everybody uh, in the organization, from the janitors and the ticket takers all the way up, they all he was a good boss. He was a good person to work for. He he respected his employees. He he treated them well. He paid them fairly. He gave them, you know, room to to work. He didn't micromanage. He was a very good manager. Um, and it wasn't just in the operation of the physical stadium and the business of the team. Um, <clears throat> when once Horace becomes owner in the mid thirties, uh, you know McGraw is dead at this point. So so the 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 operation of the baseball team itself was now in the hands of Bill Terry, uh, the player manager star uh, heir to McGraw as player manager. Um, and Terry continued to run the team, uh, the manage the roster and the farm system, the budding farm system in his time there. But in 1942, when Bill Terry resigns, uh, because he believes that because of World War II, the, you know, the, the long-term way that baseball is operating with the farm system is sustainable and just says i'm just i'm just you know this this is not for me this is not a good use of my uh, i'm i'm costing the the operation the, the the franchise more money than i'm bringing in so he's sort of resigned and he, he Terry was independently wealthy and went, went back to memphis and made a lot of money in the cotton business but uh when, when terry resigns in 1942 stonewood does not replace him Stone doesn't hire a general manager. At the, at the very same time, that fall of 1942, Larry McPhail, the general manager of the Dodgers, also resigned. Well, what do the Dodgers do? The Dodgers reach out and bring in Branch Rickey to replace him. Well, Horace Stone didn't do that. When when Bill Terry resigned, uh, Horace Stone just quietly assumes Bill Terry's job and becomes not just the manager of the Polo Grounds physical plant, but also the general manager of the franchise. He made all the trades. He he fashioned the roster he oversaw the scouting department and the farm system and everything he did everything himself uh, and as i said earlier there were a couple of owners who still did that in those days calvin griffith first 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 clark and then calvin griffith with the senators operated their their franchise in the same way um and you know branch Rickey, once he becomes general manager of the dodgers then becomes owner and so he was he was operating that way but it was it was even in those days that was a very rare thing for owners to do and Stoneham did it all the way to the very end he he was the guy who ran the giants every detail uh, up until the day he sold them in in 1976 so when the younger Stoneham Horace gets uh receives the franchise uh and the stadium and all of that um I I'm guessing the transition from, uh, you know, head apprentice, shall we say, it almost like sounds like he's sort of like a general manager or chief operating officer in some respects under under his dad or, or doing everything in that respect. I I'm guessing that the transition wasn't necessarily uh, that big of a deal because he essentially had been training for 
a whole bunch of years of his adult life for kind of that very moment. Was he was he expecting that this franchise would become his upon his father's death? Oh yes. Oh yeah, absolutely yes. When when uh, Charles bought the franchise in January of 1919, the the lore is, and this is unverifiable, of course, but it seems to be the case that you know one of the first things Charles does. When he gets home from work that day, he seeks out Horace and says, "Hori, I just bought you a ball club. I bought you the Giants. They're yours." You know that, that, and that's why uh, Charles was so frustrated with Horace not, you know, buckling down and, and educating himself and, and becoming a good heir, because this is what he wanted for his son, and he, he wanted Horace to understand the, the Giants are for you. This is the legacy I want the Stoneham name to to have. I don't want to, the Stoneham name to be forever you know, linked with with uh, shady uh, securities exchange rackets and gambling and everything. I want the Giants to be, or the Sonnen name to be the New York Giants, a, a, a wholesome, good baseball, you know, a great American cultural tradition. That That's what he was training him to do. Everybody understood that, that he was the heir. And so when, uh, certainly people didn't expect Charles to die as young as he did. He He died at the age of I guess he was 59, 59 and a half. He had kidney disease. He was overweight and he drank too much, you know, and I'm I'm, cert- I'm certain and, and nowadays his his uh, his demise would have been able to be uh, uh, avoided, but at that time you got Bright's disease that they called it at the time. He he was a dead man. So they didn't he didn't expect to die quite that young, but the, when he died the 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 will stated that Horace shall take over the Giants and so that was understood and it was it was greeted with with delight in all the local press. Everybody knew Horace. Everybody liked Horace. They were happy for him that he could take over as the Giants owner, and it was it was seen as just a natural, uh, uh, positive progression. Um, describe the team in New York uh, around this uh, uh, ownership environment with um, under Horace's uh, uh, oversight. I my my sense is that there are a couple of sort of blips of. Um, of, of true success, uh, that in sort of the mid-30s, uh, you know, with folks like Carl Hubble and, and Mel Ott, uh, Bill Terry, um, uh, and in the late 40s, early 50s, which, uh, you know, Leo DeRocher, obviously, and Willie Mays, of course, Bobby Thompson, uh, culminating in, I think, what most people would uh, firmly remember is probably the brightest moment in New York baseball giants history, the World Series Championship in 1954. Um but it's interesting, as I say that, um, I, I'm guessing that it would be safe to say that the New York baseball giants were not necessarily known as, for you know, uh, an ongoing period of time, as sort of a dominant uh, franchise, essentially. They were kind of, you know, not bad, occasionally really good, and, and that only won world championship, though. I, so I guess, I'm, I'm, I guess the question in there is, how good of a an overseer? Uh, how good of an overseer was Horace in the New York ownership uh, saga? Um, you know, in some respects, you could could maybe make the assumption that he's a great, you know, he's a a good guy and a, and a solid manager of of affairs, but maybe not necessarily, you know, pushing all of the envelopes to get to to championship status on a regular basis. I, there's a lot in there, but you know, you know where I'm going. 
that's 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 a that's a great question. Uh, um, it's 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 a major theme of the book. In fact, um, it was a source of great frustration for Horace that he wasn't able to be as successful as he wanted to be. The Giants, under John McGraw, of course, were were until the Yankees rose in the in the late twenties. The Giants were the greatest, uh, uh, most successful franchise in baseball, certainly in the National League. Um, and you know the McGraw uh, legacy that was left to Bill Terry in the 1930s was still a, a very, very good ball club. And you're right, they won pennants in 1933, and then in Horace's first two years of ownership in 36 and 37, they won pennants. It was a terrific team uh, with Ott and Hubble and and uh, Terry and a number of other stars. Uh, but beginning in 1938, the Giants uh, uh, begin to fade uh, as a contender. And at the very same moment in the late 30s, the Dodgers, uh, who had been the real, you know, third wheel in, in New York baseball, that they were the, the Dodgers weren't taken seriously by anybody. The Dodgers were were a joke. They were funny. They were dumb bums. You know, they they were they were the the, the butt of all the jokes. Uh, for decades in New York, well, not in the 1930s. They weren't. They weren't. They brought in Leo DeRocher and they brought in Larry McPhail. And McPhail refurbishes Ebbets Field and puts up lights and spends a ton of money to bring in Dolph Camilli and Joe Medwick and Kirby Higby and Pete Reeser arrives and Pee Wee Reese. And you know, 1941, the Dodgers are winning the pennant. It was just unheard of. They surpassed the Giants not only in the standings but in attendance. Uh, shocking uh, the National League, uh, this complete reversal just in a few years' time. Uh, Horace Stoneham was was staggered. <laughs> he was stunned that the, um, what am I doing here? My my pop, my you know he called his dad pop. Pop would be ashamed of me. I'm allowing the Dodgers to upstage me right here in New York. And so Stoneham tried to to react. He he promotes Melot from player star player to player manager in 1942, a, a, a move whose wisdom can certainly be questioned, but it was certainly not a move, you know, that, that was made by somebody who was just biding his time. It was meant to shake things up. And then immediately following that, uh, Terry, yeah, with, with Stoneham's uh, bankroll behind it, he brings in Johnny Mize, a huge purchase of a superstar slugger into the Giants. They were trying to to respond to to counteract the offensive that the Dodgers had placed for them, but it wasn't successful. Uh, under Ott, the Giants were even less successful than they had been earlier. They even dropped to last place in 1943, and then again in 1946. Uh, so he was finally in another realm of kind of desperation in mid-1948 that Stoneham does the unthinkable, and he fires his beloved Mel Ott. And please understand, I don't think I've covered this here. Uh, Ott wasn't just Stoneham's employee. that They were best friends. He loved Mel Ott and, and, and hated to do anything to disappoint Mel Ott, and Having to fire him as manager was a crushing thing for Stoneham to have to do, but he did it because he, he felt he had to. And not only does he fire Melot, he brings in none other than Leo DeRocher to replace him. A stunning move, a bombshell of all bombshells, the hated arch rival, the guy who'd been the face of all this upstart Brooklyn Dodger success. You're going to bring in him to, him in to manage the Giants? It was a huge, stunning bombshell intended by Stoneham to signal that, you know, all was not well. We're not, we're not satisfied with the status quo. We have to change. We have to 
reconfigure and uh, with DeRocher on board, they refashioned the whole uh, roster. Uh, uh, at DeRocher's urging, they made a huge trade with the Braves, traded away two sluggers, Willard Marshall and Sid Gordon, and in return received, received a terrific uh, double play combination, shortstop second base combination, Alvin Dark and Eddie Stanky, sort of reconfiguring the type of team they were. And then simultaneously with that, um, using Carl Hubble, his longtime superstar pitcher, now the now the director of the Giants' new farm system. He's investing tons of money in the farm system. They're they're beginning to develop their own talent to compete with the Dodgers and the Yankees, and they racially integrate. They bring in Monty Irvin and Hank Thompson, and then a couple of years later, they bring in the incomparable Willie Mays. They they just within a few years' time, they really revitalized the entire franchise. And and exactly right in 1951, and then certainly with the World Series sweep in '54 of the Indians. Uh, the New York Giants achieved uh, success, certainly, which was comparable to the greatest success that uh, McGraw had achieved decades earlier. It would be the greatest period of success for the Giants under Horace Stoneham's ownership. It would be, uh, by the way, also the greatest success ever achieved in baseball by Leo DeRocher. They, they, through their long 50-year careers, they simultaneously were partnered while they both achieved their greatest success. Um, it would all fall apart quickly after that but it was it was an amazing achievement amazing turnaround in a few years time yeah and and um i you know i think most people who remember the new york giants especially remember uh or at least the stories of uh some of those uh, exploits in the 50s right and of course you know i want to get too um too obvious about it but i mean you know the the 1951 pennant race with the uh, the dodgers was just a thing of of lore right uh, the uh uh, the, the 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 Bobby Thompson you know uh, 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 home run and the Giants win the pennant and and, and the you know I, and the fifty four World Series right I you know that's it, it would seem to me that the Giants were after all of those that shakeup and and that sort of commitment were on the rise so to speak and 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 quite dominant in a then three team New York City hyper competitive marketplace but I, I guess what sort of uh, is lost in all of that sort of success um, is perhaps the the economics and the attendance and maybe the the booming fifties generally right across this country uh, the advent of things like television and the automobile and and post war economic boom and all that kind of stuff lots of um, uh, new found uh, ways to spend discretionary income and 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 occupy people's uh, uh, leisure time and 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 baseball generally, but uh, the Giants uh, maybe specifically were, you know, not necessarily nailing it when it came to um, the turnstiles and, and those revenues. I'm guessing. Yeah, the economic crisis that Major League Baseball faced in the 1950s was severe. Uh, it was dramatic. We we you know we we decades later we look back at the 50s as this happy time of economic prosperity and you know. Uh, freeways and patios and, you know, white people driving station wagons. It, it, it was a great time for a lot of people. Not in the inner cities in the, uh, you know, crowded northeast corridor for the United States, it wasn't. The the boom was going on elsewhere. And the, those inner cities, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, Detroit, Cleveland, they were suddenly struggling in the 50s um, f through a, a combination of a bunch of different economic things. Um, 
the automobile. In the post-war world, people weren't satisfied to just use trains and buses anymore. They wanted their piece of the American dream, and they wanted their car. Um, and so they wanted to move out of the crowded inner city to the leafy suburbs and, and you know, Communities were happily uh, uh, accommodating that by building out new roads and freeways and highways and shopping centers and all this stuff. And there was a dramatic re uh, movement of the population away from congested inner cities into suburbs and away from the northeast into the south and the west. Cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and Houston and Phoenix and Seattle, they boom in the 50s, whereas the places where Major League Baseball was, were not booming. And as the cities hollowed out of the affluent people who could afford to move out, you know, the only people who were left were increasingly poorer and blacker. And, and uh, you know, these cities became uh, uh, quickly changed in their image from being places you want to be if you're a white person with income to a place you don't want to be. And in this environment, it's really difficult to get people to leave their leafy suburbs and take the train into New York and watch a game at the Polo Grounds in Harlem. Um, so it wasn't just the Giants. It was the Dodgers. It was also the Phillies and the Braves and the Senators and the Indians. Everybody was struggling with this. Um, and in New York in particular, because it was you know, not just a congested inner city, but a congested inner city that was hemmed in by congested inner cities around it. It was especially a, a difficult economic environment. Well, not only were residents moving out, but businesses were moving out. Um, the manufacturing was no longer taking place inside these cities just because it was cheaper and more efficient to move it. You know, Nowadays, they move it offshore. Well, then they moved it out west. They moved it out where there was cheaper real estate and more access to, to freeways and trucks to, to move the product. And so these cities were really struggling. Attendance cratered for these uh, teams. Um, you know, Brooklyn fans in particular, but New York fans in general, they, they you know, they, they, why did they leave us? You know, how terrible that they could abandon us? They didn't have a whole lot of economic choice. Um, they were either going to stay and watch their the size of their business dramatically contract, at least for you know 10 or 15 years, as long as it took for the cities to to retool and recover, or they were going to get out while they could and and find uh, a better economic uh, picture. Uh, yeah, Walter and, O'Malley, and, and, and in the backdrop uh, of that, right? Too, I'm sorry, I didn't mean, in the backdrop of all that too, and you kind of sort of hinted at it, right? Is that that you know, baseball had historically up until that time, and frankly, a lot of quote unquote professional sports in this country were, to your point, headquartered and centered along the eastern seaboard and a bit and bits and pieces of the Midwest. This is, you know, but, but while the nation is essentially kind of expanding and booming and traveling and, and uh, uh, enlarging its sights, so to speak, right? You have a a, a league, a baseball uh, league that is not in all these other sort of growing and, and, and fledgling metropolitan areas. So it's disproportionately affecting uh, the gate. I, for example, I mean, I know uh, uh, just looking at some stats here, like the, the Giants in, in 1947, right? They were they were an OK team. They were fourth place. They were kind of, you know, uh, nothing special, but, you know, not not bad either. Uh, they had drawn about a, a million six um, despite finishing uh, fourth in um, in their division or in the league. Um, but, you know, in 51 and 54, we had these sort of uh, uh, iconic uh, uh, moments in the in the, the team's history. Um, they were they were barely able to, to hit over the million mark in home attendance. So, 
you know, it wasn't because of the play. It's it's there's some real forces there that that as an owner, one has to take a look at. And by the way, I'm guessing, too, the state of the stadium was also a part of the mix, too. Yes, all this is happening simultaneously. You know, the, the polo grounds, for a good example, was, you know, in the 1920s, it was a gleaming, you know, pinnacle of state-of-the-art modernity and, and a great place to watch a game. Well, not by the 1950s, it wasn't. Um, you know, those 30 years had not been kind to it. They, they, these buildings, by the way, they weren't built to last. You know, they weren't built as, as long-term. They were built cheaply and quickly. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, by the 1950s, the polo grounds was, was rickety in need of a lot of refurbishment. Here, here's the other thing. These, these, these inner city ballparks, like the polo grounds, they weren't built to accommodate cars. There was no parking or very, very little parking. And what was there was not very safe for, for parking your fancy, you know, suburban convertible in some cheap lot in, in Harlem for a night game. It was not a safe place to park your car. This there was a whole bunch of compounding reasons which drove the business away from uh, Major League Baseball operating in these congested inner cities. Um, and, and here's the thing: the the, the, the Boston Braves, the, the runt of the litter in even in Boston, was the first of the franchises to move. In 1952-53, they moved from Boston to Milwaukee. Their attendance quintuples. <laughs> They go from the lowest attendance in the league to by far the highest in Milwaukee. They're a huge success, a, a gusher of new revenue in 1953. Well, you know, Horace Thumb saw that. Walter O'Malley saw that. Everybody in baseball saw that and said, well, hang on a second. Well, you know, that's Milwaukee. If Milwaukee can do that, what the hell could Los Angeles do? Um, I was going to say, O'Malley, to his credit, I think O'Malley really did try to work with the, the city fathers of New York to get a new stadium built. And, and O'Malley wasn't, he, he was, O'Malley was willing to put up at least some of his own money to get it done, but it was just so complicated. And especially with the declining economic tax base and everything in New York in the fifties, it was a very difficult thing to get a new stadium project done. They, they talked and talked and talked, but we're nowhere near getting it done. Stoneham, meanwhile, doesn't appear to have invested much more than just, you know, lip service in that. Stoneham, probably as early as 1955, but certainly by 1956, Stoneham knew that that it was inevitable. He was going to have to move. And, um, and, And his motivation wasn't just because things were so grim in the polo grounds. It was like, I got to get one of these new virgin territories quickly before somebody else does. If I don't grab San Francisco, somebody else will. Um, Stoneham's first choice was probably going to be Minneapolis because the Giants had their AAA farm team there, and they were, and he knew that Minneapolis was hard at work building a new taxpayer-funded stadium to attract a team, and everybody expected it was going to be the Giants. But, but Stoneham wasn't committed to that. He was also actively talking with San Francisco and with Houston and with. Dallas, um, you know, all these cities were, were, were actively recruiting teams. It, was, it wasn't just that the Giants and the Dodgers and, you know, and these other teams were, 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 were thinking about moving. They were being recruited. Um, and so, the, you know, the whole dynamic, there was push and there was pull. Everything, all the forces were aligned to get uh, Major League Baseball to change its physical 
footprint and get to these new markets as soon as they possibly could. Yeah, it also seems to be even more urgent in, in Stoneham's case because the source of his wealth really is the team and the polo grounds, right? Unlike some of these other owners who had other sort of revenue sources that you know, could either absorb the blow or, or be resources for either sticking it out or, or, or whatever. So I guess I, I'm guess, guessing that the forces of economics are a bit more acute uh, in Stoneham's case. And, and especially, by the way, being it, yes. part of a three-team three, uh, yes. dynamic and in the city. So Stoneham right? was competing with the Dodgers and Giants in New York, and, and he was the third team there. You know, he was By the 1950s, the Giants were no longer not only not the number one team, they were the number three team in New York, firing both the Yankees and the Dodgers. And you're exactly right. Stoneham, uh, his father had been extraordinarily wealthy, but the, 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 the Depression wiped out. The stock market crash wiped Charles out. He lost all his millions. And the only possession Charles had anymore was the Giants. And so when when uh, Horace inherits the Giants, that's what he inherits. He inherits the Giants franchise and the Polo Grounds. That's it. There was no other source of wealth for them. Contrast Horace Stoneham, for example, with Phil Wrigley, his near exact contemporary in age, who, just like Horace, Phil Wrigley inherited the Cubs from his father in the 1930s. Well, Phil Wrigley also owned the Wrigley Chewing Gum Company. <laughs> so he he wasn't quite so pressed to make sure that the Cubs made money because you know, Wrigley was independently wealthy. Well, not Horace Stoneham. If the Giants didn't make money, Horace Stoneham would go broke. And so he. And here's the other thing: the Polo Grounds through the 20s and 30s had been a source of income. They they brought in all kinds of rental money for all these football games and boxing matches and everything. Yeah, the New, the New York the football, 1950s, the New York football giants were a, a tenant for a long time. They, they were a tenant. Yeah. They, they moved away. They moved to Yankee Stadium in 1956. Nobody wanted to come to the Polo Grounds anymore. None of those venues were, none of those events were happening at the venue. So his other source, his only other source of income, the Polo Grounds as a, as a source of revenue, that had dried up. Um, he was desperate. He, you know, he, he could have stuck it out uh, in New York, but it would have been a, a he would have become uh, and no longer a, a guiding you know a leading franchise, but sort of an also ran desperately getting by kind of a franchise, and and he did not want that. So I, I, I'm as we sort of maybe round third base because I obviously we want to kind of we're I'm going a little deeper on the New York side of the story. I want to sort of get to the if you will the denouement of, of San Francisco in a minute. But um, it clear this up for me because I, I it seems to be still somewhat debatable despite all of the ink spilled on the topic. How much collusion really was there between O'Malley and Stoneham? Uh, I, I mean, I, depending on certain accounts, and it sounds like you've kind of discounted it a bit, um, it, it, certain accounts have Stoneham kind of lasering in on Minneapolis, but uh, even uh, going so far as to, to say that, that O'Malley tried to redirect him to San Francisco and maybe was the reason he then set his sights on San Francisco, maybe to keep a rivalry going, albeit uh, in you know California, but kind of preserving some of that stuff and they could both do this together, shall we say. Yeah, it's an interesting, complicated dynamic, um, and certainly, you know, there's a lot of of lore that goes around this, and that the 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 folkloric explanation is that O'Malley was the smart guy, and Stoneham was the you know kind of the amiable bumbler, that uh, O'Malley masterminded the whole thing, and you know, convinced 
Stoneham to move, and 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 if you're going to move, Horace, you need to move to San, to, to San Francisco so we can both get California. There's even a version of this where O'Malley gives uh, Stoneham the choice: which do you want, Los Angeles or San Francisco? And Stoneham foolishly chooses San Francisco because this is what O'Malley wanted to do all along, and O'Malley tricked him. And all that is folkloric. None of it is supported by fact. The fact is that uh, Stoneham was, in fact, uh, more motivated to move than O'Malley was. Um, O'Malley was still trying to figure out a way to stay in New York when Stoneham had pretty much given up on that. Stoneham was probably going to go to Minneapolis. That was his first and most obvious choice, but he was by no means committed to that. Stoneham wasn't stupid. Stoneham wasn't oblivious. Stoneham knew everything that O'Malley did. I mean, it was it, none of that stuff was a mystery. <laughs> Everybody knew what was going on in California. It was a booming economy, and and you know these markets were were clearly, if not yet, going to surpass these eastern markets. They were on a trajectory to do so very soon. San Francisco wasn't passive. They were recruiting the Giants. They were recruiting anybody they could. You know, Stone's phone was ringing. Um, so it wasn't that he was he was persuaded by O'Malley. It was the case that O'Malley and Stoneham were were operating independently. They they weren't closely collaborating until uh, the spring of 1957. It's in the spring of 57. Both teams are going to move. They're both resolved it. And the only question now is where. It was in the spring of 57 that it was O'Malley who took Stoneham aside and said, look, look, let's be smart here. If we're going to move, let's both move together. Let's both move to California. This will be good for both of us. It'll preserve our, our rivalry. Each of us will have a guaranteed big gate when we play the other. Los Angeles and San Francisco are natural local rivals. Um, you know, the whole thing worked. And, of course, it, it did. It was all, this was all true and smart. Um, but O'Malley didn't have to persuade Stoneham of this. Stoneham was happily, eagerly. You know, the, the way I put it in the book is Stoneham's response to O'Malley was probably, uh, I, I, I was I, why did, what took you so long? <laughs> I've been waiting for you to, to, to ask me this. Um, and, you know, and he jumped on it. And within a matter of two months uh, after, uh, in the March of 57, by May, um, they had both of them talked with the mayors of Los Angeles and San Francisco and the stadium uh, agreements were, were, you know, at least penciled in and it was a done deal uh, by March or I'm sorry, by May of 57, Estonum is committed to San Francisco. He pro- proposes to his board, uh, which is you know pretty much a rubber stamp. The, the vote of the Giants board, by the way, it's the vote of Giants board to move to San Francisco is eight to one, a nine-person board. The one dissenting vote was uh, by Joan Payson, who is a member of Estonum's board, and she didn't want to see her beloved Giants go to. San Francisco, so she soon resigns from the Giants board, and uh, within a few years, she is bankrolling the New York Mets because she wants uh, Major League Baseball to remain in New York. And she really, what she really wanted was to be able to to acquire Willie Mays and bring Mays back to the Mets, and they eventually did, but it took them a long time. But no, the, the, the Stoneham was going to move. O'Malley finally, after Stoneham, yes, he agreed we are going to move, and once they were both going to move. The move of them jointly moving to to California was was it was O'Malley's specific suggestion, but by no means was it uh, an idea that had never occurred to Stoneham. 
All right. So two two questions and to, to to wrap up, and and we're certainly not going to get into uh, the the uh, the later years of of the San Francisco Giants and all that kind of stuff. Because we really want to focus sort of on this uh, the Stoneham era, shall we say? But but even transitionally, even before the the years uh, in San Francisco, I I'm really curious as to how that uh, was messaged to the New York community uh, that this was going to happen, or or maybe wasn't messaged, uh, and the uh, the actual transition to San Francisco, how how easy or not so easy did that go? It clearly, uh, San Francisco and the the Bay Area welcomed this team with open arms, um, but it wasn't sort of uh, necessarily easy or smooth. There was no Candlestick Park ready to go per se. There was you know there's a lot of a lot of transitional stuff that had to happen. It wasn't necessarily a, a, you know a checkbox that it was going to be a, a hit literally and figuratively from the get go. Right, and there wasn't a whole lot of of uh, history of how to do this. You know, <clears throat> there had been obviously franchise moves in the previous years, the Braves, and then and then the St. Louis Browns and Philadelphia A's. But the, all three of those franchises were you know really desperate, struggling tail enders. You know, the Giants and the Dodgers were big time successful, big name franchises. None of no such thing had had happened in at least fifty years for one of them to move. Stoneham hated to move out of New York. He loved New York. It was a devastating decision for him to have to make, but it's sort of a, a, a an indicator of what kind of a businessman he was. He, it was the right thing to do, so he committed himself to do it. He kind of sheepishly announced it to the New York press. He wasn't happy about it. He wasn't triumphant about it. He was just, matter of fact, this is what we have to do. The The famous line is that the 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 at the press conference, they said, well, you know, aren't you going to disappoint all these, these kids that they won't be able to go see the Giants at the Polo Grounds? And Stone's resort was, yeah, I hate to disappoint the kids, but I haven't seen a lot of their fathers lately at the, at the ballpark. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he, he didn't like to do it, didn't want to do it. It was devastating news. Of course, the double blow of the Giants and the Dodgers simultaneously was, was a huge gut punch to, uh, to New York. Fortunately for Stoneham, O'Malley fit the the archetypal role of villain better than Stoneham did. Stoneham was just this amiable, friendly guy that nobody really disliked. Well, everybody disliked O'Malley, so O'Malley took all the flack as being the villain of the piece, even though he was no more responsible for it than Stoneham was. Um, Stoneham just kind of quietly you know, snuck out of town. He didn't even attend the final uh, Giants game at the Polo Grounds in September 29, 57. He couldn't bring himself to do it. He he, he was bereft. He, he he was too sad, too sad for him. Uh, he came out to San Francisco, you know, in the fall of 57. He went house hunting, um, bought a house, um, set up a, a ticket office, you know, and, and, and went to work. Here's the interesting thing about Stoneham and his style. He offered everybody in the organization, everybody in the organization, bat boy, clubhouse man, groundskeeper, everybody. Um, your job is, is still safe. If you're willing to move to San Francisco with me, you can keep your job. And almost everybody uh, took him up on the offer, 90% of the staff of the front office and the whole organization. They all moved to San Francisco with him because they loved him and they loved working for the giants. And, and, and he was able to preserve a lot of the organizational culture, um, in San Francisco, um, to, to a degree, which was, 
which was quite successful. They were, yes, they were welcomed with open arms in San Francisco. They played for their first uh, two years in a very substandard steel stadium. It was a, you know, it'd been a great minor league ballpark, but it was way, way too small by, by major league standards, but still they, they, they were successful at it. Of course, once they, they, they got the, the brand new spanking ballpark that had been the attraction all along, it was Candlestick Park and it turned out to be just a, a laughing stock of its own, but you know, nobody knew it at the time. Uh, at the time, it was seen that Stoneham was was pulling off a, a brilliant deal that he would get a state of the art, beautiful facility and 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 come out uh, far better than he ever would have in New York. Well, there's so many other things we could go into. I just we just, uh, frankly just don't have time. But I the whole uh, Candlestick Park story and. Uh, 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 and you know the 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 rivalry that continued uh, uh, with uh, the Dodgers and all of that. I guess I guess I just sort of would sort of cul-de-sac this with with one sort of I guess bigger question is, um, uh, you know, obviously you've spent a lot of time getting into um, the quote-unquote biography of of Stone. What, what do you think uh, his legacies? might be I, I clearly um you know the the story and the villain i guess if you're a new yorker or the uh the uh, the you know the uh, the savior i guess or the, uh, the 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 bringer of major leagueness to san francisco for if you're looking from a san francisco perspective but uh, this was a guy who to your point earlier you know quietly a, a gentle giant i guess in some respects um perhaps needs to be uh spotlighted a little bit more in some of the other things that maybe He's not gotten a whole lot of credit for. I, I, there was an article uh, in the San Jose Mercury News, I think, uh, featuring you a few months ago when you were beginning some of the publicity for this book on, you know, his um, uh, un, uh, you know, uh, celebrated uh, uh, early work in integration, uh, maybe even a little bit, uh, you know, uh, behind the scenes, so to speak, versus, say, uh, the more bombastic, I guess, or the more um attention grabbing Jackie Robinson Brooklyn Dodgers story um any other those and other things that that Stoneham might be maybe unnecessarily forgotten about or not credited for uh for his contributions to the game through his frankly almost lifelong association with this team yeah the 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 racial integration part is one as well as the integration of uh, uh North American baseball with Japanese baseball uh, Stoneham was was a huge pioneer in both those things. The Dodgers were first to racially integrate. Uh, and of course they did it, you know, with Branch Rickey, you know, stage managing the whole thing, making himself look like a big hero. Um, the Dodgers were the first, but the Giants were, were, were best. The Giants not only racially integrated the major league roster, the Giants racially integrated their farm system. And the Giants went into uh, Latin America um, in a way that far more extensively than the Dodgers ever did. Uh, Horace Stoneham hired Alejandro Alex Pompez um, in 1951 to the, as the first black man in a major league front office um, because Pompez, who had uh, been a longtime uh, owner in the Negro Leagues and was Cuban-American, um, would be a great liaison to both the New York, both the Negro League uh, uh, community as well as the Latin American baseball community. It was through Pompez that Stoneham was able to to exploit the Latin American market and bring the Giants tons of uh, talent that uh, that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten. You know, Cepeda and and the Alou brothers and Marichal, yada yada yada. So Stoneham 
racially integrated, not just his major league roster, but the whole organization, racially and culturally as well, with all the Spanish speakers, um, in a way that was ahead of every other organization in the major leagues. He also was a pioneer with Japanese baseball. Um, it was Stoneham who was the first of the major league teams to, to have uh, exhibition games with Japanese teams to travel to Japan. The Giants were going to Japan to tour as early as 1953. Um, it was through that association with uh, Japanese baseball that the Giants were the first major league franchise to uh, hire a Japanese-born player, Masanori Murakami, in 1964. Um, the Giants, you know, established that relationship with uh, Japanese baseball far earlier than any other major league team did. Uh, Stoneham did it without fanfare, without getting much publicity or credit. He just did it because he thought it was cool. He thought it was the right thing. He thought he could make a buck off of it. He thought it was the right thing to do. Um, in both those ways, he was a he was a he was a pioneer. He was a leader, but because. He was so publicity shy, he wasn't covered much in the press at the time, and nobody really understood that he was the guy who was driving that. His success as a general manager was mixed. He was good, but not great. He was good enough to make the Giants a perennial contender, but not great enough to make them a, a, you know, a, a consistent winner. And so that sort of you know, good enough, but not great uh, uh, image of him um, overshadows his really, truly successful uh, endeavors at, uh, at, 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 you know, maybe more important things about uh, making sure that Major League Baseball was truly a multiracial, multicultural uh, endeavor that could be, uh, you know, that everybody could, could be a part of. Well, so, so much more to the story. And, and, um, and it seems like a really a wealth of, of, uh, of, of intrigue and, and information and, and, uh, not easily understood or, or frankly, uh, just uh, uh, not fully explored uh, tidbits and, 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 and contribution to the, the story, frankly, of, of the San Francisco Giants, right? Uh, without uh, a guy like Horace Stoneham both inheriting this franchise and what he did with it and how he learned and, and became this. I mean, it's, it's, um, I'm just surprised that it's taken this long kind of to get a somewhat uh, a, a deep and concentrated biography of the man uh, sort of out there. But I guess you're sort of hinting at maybe why this was a guy who didn't leave a lot of publicity-centric breadcrumbs around, right? On purpose. Yeah, I don't know if it was on purpose or just because he, he was unwittingly, it was just, just the way he was. I mean, contrast this with O'Malley, who was so publicity conscious. O'Malley, you know, had a had a public relations machine in place all the time. O'Malley was very conscious of his own legacy and, you know, wrote all kinds of memos to file to make sure that researchers would understand exactly what he was thinking and saying at the time. Stoneham did none of that. He, they, he left no records. <laughs> he left no, no files. I mean, I hired a, a great uh, researcher to research the, the Hall of Fame library and, you know, uh, uh, all the papers and stuff they have there, all the league meetings and stuff. He was able to come up with some stuff for me, but very little because Stoneham left very little. Um, he has not uh, been, uh, nobody's written his biography because it's, it's, it wasn't easy to do. He, he didn't leave a whole lot of, of easy uh, things for the biographer to, to pick up. I, you know, I wish I could have had a lot of uh, firsthand accounts of interviews with Stoneham at the time and all that kind of stuff, but, but they just don't exist. Um, 
that's the way he wanted it. He 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 preferred to be private. He preferred to be behind the scenes. He was happy to be anonymous. He was happy to let O'Malley get all the publicity and nobody talk about Horace Donham. That's just the way he wanted it. And so he's been hiding in plain sight for decades. Um, but, you know, if you're uh, uh, someone who's interested not just in, in baseball history, but in, in, in sports history and in American cultural history, what happened in the United States in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, you know, what all transformed the New York Giants, San Francisco Giants story and all the racial and economic implications that go along with it. It's, it's, a, it's a great story. It's a great insight into how the world was then and how it changed so dramatically in the mid-20th century. All right, time to promote. Uh, tell us the book title. Uh, give us uh, some ideas of maybe some promotion you're going to doing. Uh, how about Twitter handles or, or how can people find out more about not only the book, but you? I don't know if you've got a blog or you uh, tweet uh, on a regular basis, social media, that kind of stuff. Let's all let's have at it um, for. Uh, well, yeah, I, for I appreciate this, Tim. You're you're a little bit ahead of me. I'm working on that. I'm working <laughs> on a website um, and I will once the website's up, I'm going to I'm going to use that as a basis for uh, a, a Twitter handle on as well. The, the title of the book is 40 Years a Giant, uh, colon, Horace Stoneham and, uh, Horace Stoneham and, the, and, and his life with the Giants. Oh, 40 Years a Giant is, is the title. Um, University of Nebraska Press, it, it, it is scheduled to be published in June. I'm doing um, um, some interviews with, uh, with Sabre and with the New York Giants Preservation Society and other places as well to to promote the book. Once I have the website up and the and the, the the Twitter site and everything, I will definitely forward that along to you, and you can forward forward that along to your your podcast audience. And, and Tim, um, if you want to do round two and explore the the, the post nineteen fifty eight San Francisco Giants as a podcast, I'd be I'd be delighted to do that with you as well. There, you know, as you say, it's a big story. <laughs> There's a lot going on here, and a lot of characters that play very um, um, prominent roles in this story of, of people who are not just Charles Stoneham and, and uh, you know, Leo DeRocher, but Branch Rickey and, and Charlie Finley. And, and there's a lot of other very colorful characters that are a part of Horace Stoneham's story that, uh, that it's something I think, like I say, if, if, you're, if you're a student of baseball history and just a student of American pop cultural history in general this is a this is a really a rich vein well now that's a pretty darn compelling case don't you think horace stoneham possibly maybe for the baseball hall of fame and uh again as we said at the top of the show uh literally last week we just discovered uh this brand new website that uh is I don't think affiliated with Steve in this book, uh, but uh, interestingly timed for sure, uh, called HoraceInTheHall.com, H-O-R-A-C-E, HoraceInTheHall.com, apparently devoted to making the case for one Horace Stoneham to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And who are we to argue, especially given this conversation with our pal now, Steve Treder, and his book, which I highly commend to you, uh, you will learn quite a ton about this gentle giant 
of the Giants franchise. It's called 40 Years a Giant, The Life of Horace Stoneham. It is published by the University of Nebraska Press, our pals there, of course. And again, our guest, Steve Treder, is the author extraordinaire of such. You can find a convenient link to either the pre-order or the actual order, depending on when you're listening to the show. I believe it hits the, the stands in earnest on June 1st. But if you're earlier on that side of, uh, of that date, uh, why not you pre-order it so you can uh, ensure that you'll get it as quickly uh, as is humanly possible once it's out there. Uh, you will find a convenient link to Amazon from our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode there. Uh, I think it's episode number 212. My goodness. And you'll find a convenient link right there to Amazon, and you can do that there. If you're listening to this show after June 1st, well, do the same, but ensure that the book will be absolutely available immediately, or pretty darn close to immediately, as fast as Prime can deliver it to you. Uh, let's see. Uh, of course, you can buy it wherever fine books are found. Uh, but uh, if you want to give us a couple of shekels of love by doing so, well, that's probably the best and quickest and nicest means to do so. Uh, of course, while you're on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, you will find all of our episodes that we've uh, done in the past four years or so. And of course, we'll post all the ones to come as well. Uh, the, of course, the easiest way to ensure that you don't miss any stinking little episode is to get us in your podcast feed, for God's sakes. We're available just about wherever you can get podcasts. All of your favorite catchers and, and services and streaming services, we're there. We're not going to list them all for you. You'll find us. Just look us up. Try, trust me, we're there. And uh, tell your friends. That's good, too. We appreciate that. Hey, if you want to review and, uh, us and rate us and, and give us a couple of, you know, like five stars, let's say, and maybe some some kind words of, uh, of kudos, we'd love those. That helps our algorithm and other people like you find the show. That certainly doesn't hurt. Uh, let's see. You want to send us some email? Well, you can do that, too. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can follow us on social media, of course. There's a page devoted to us on Facebook. Uh, we post yeah, about once a day on uh, Instagram. We're at Good Seats Still Available. And we post uh, a bunch of times a day on Twitter. Uh, you'll find us there uh, at Good Seats Still. Uh, there is a, a little weekly newsletter that we publish every weekend for you, too. Uh, just search on the website and you'll find a little link to that. And you can subscribe and give us your name and your email address. And voila, you're good to go there, too. What else? How about, uh, oh yeah, you're not, they're not yelling boo. No, they're yelling Jerry, Jerry, Jerry Payne, Dr. Jerry Payne, uh, in, uh, Metro Atlanta, Georgia area. Uh, and, uh, he is the guy who, uh, helps us produce and, uh, and put all our pieces together each and every week, this show. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a chore for sure, but, uh, he does it with, uh, aplomb and, uh, with a smile on his face and occasionally we pay him to do it, and uh, uh, we can't uh, do it without him. We appreciate it. Jerry Payne, audio excellence, of course, as always. Uh, and you, the, the fine listener out there, thanks so much for your continued support. Uh, we are way behind in, in sending thanks to all of our, our emails, uh, inquiries, and all that kind of stuff. we got to figure out some kind of way to, uh, to, to get some kind of um, uh, thank you sort of on the air. We're going to try to figure out a way to do that in the, in the weeks to come. Uh, and uh, regardless, we appreciate all of your input, all of your suggestions, uh, all of your criticisms, uh, all of your uh, engagements on social media. We, we love all of it. Uh, and please, again, tell your friends uh, if you like uh, half of what we do, at least uh, maybe they might, too. But we appreciate that. 
Uh, all right, that's it for this week. That's uh, I babbled enough, don't you think? Uh, take care, everybody. We'll see you next week with uh, some other fascinating topic for sure. Till then, please take care, stay safe, and get your shots, will you? Bye bye.